Welcome to Michael and Us. My name, as always, is Will Sloan, here with... Luke Savage. Hi, guys. And special guest in the studio... <laughs> it's me, Violet Luca of Film Comment. Last on the podcast <laughs> remotely for the Borat episode. And Violet's in Toronto for the uh, Toronto International Film Festival. Yeah, maybe you've heard of it. And so <laughs> Lots <yeah>. of celebs. <laughs> Much has happened since the last episode. And I think that since we are yes. a, a Michael Moore-themed podcast above all, maybe I should just say that on my recent trip to New York, I saw the new Michael Moore Broadway show, uh, Michael Moore, The Terms of My Surrender. Right, so you went to New York to see the new Michael Moore show? I went specifically to see the new Michael Moore show. You know, when you're in the business of being an ironic Michael Moore podcast (laughs) host... Occasionally, you know, people will, will ask you whether or not you're going to see the new Michael Moore um, projects. And you want to be able to answer in the affirmative. Well, <laughs> my, my answer was no, that would be a waste of time and money in New York. But then I got there and uh, uh, I, w- I was with my friend, uh, in fact, former guest of the show, Chris Berube, who said, hey, I work next to a uh, discount ticket booth. If it like, and he was like, "Let's rob like, it and wh- get the." <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "What's our ceiling for for like a, 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 a price this, for the Michael Moore show?" <laughs> and I said, "I would say my absolute maximum is forty dollars." And then we got we paid thirty nine fifty. Yeah. <laughs> and we, and God we, bless America. And we saw Michael Moore, the terms of my surrender. Uh, so so was it as good as? Well, I'm sure it was good. I don't even know why I'm asking. You know, I mean. I, I resisted saying much about it until now in public because, like, if I say that I didn't like it... <laughs> well, like, because we're the, we're the Michael Moore tastemakers and we don't want to, you know... Well, also, you know, you gotta, like... You can't spend all your thoughts for free. I don't and, live you know, in public like some people I know. Do, right. You know? Well, no, you it's had to discussion. save the thoughts for the... I mean, for, like, uh, this podcast with its, like, $70,000 month Patreon that we've got going. Yes. But but I also think that if I, if I started, like, tweeting away about how bad the Michael Moore show was, what people would say to me was... Why the fuck did you go? You, 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 you knew you weren't gonna like it. Why? Why would you waste time on your? New and York you said, vacation? and you, and you would have said because I'm a scholar first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that, that's what I would say. But you know, since I think this is a safe space to talk about these issues, uh, I will say that I thought it was a, a flawed show. But it's, it's no. always, but I gotta say, you know, as a as a tourist, I always find it kind of fun to see something on Broadway. So you know, yeah. It's nice to be in that audience. What did, uh, what did he talk about? So ostensibly the theme of the show was like, you know, one man can still make a difference. How can we fight back in the age of Trump? You know, how can one man, you, the little people, fight back? And, and so he showed us, he told us uh, four or five stories about examples where the little man had fought back. So like people who post the Hillary memes. Well, it sounds like that book John Kasich edited when he was a congressman. It was like every chapter was a different American who was, you know. Yeah, or it's like Profiles in Courage or something. Yeah, Profiles in Courage. Like this suburban parent like figured out how to monetize their child's school or whatever for for Goldman Sachs. They turned it into a charter Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the thing about these stories was that the protagonist of all the stories was, of course, uh, (laughs) Michigan-based filmmaker Michael Moore. Uh, so he told us about uh, the time when he was he he, he he as a 17 year old ran to be on the school board uh, in Michigan on the platform of firing the principal of his school 
because he was a jerk and he got elected to the school board. And I'm listening to the story thinking, well, I want to hear the principal side of the story. <laughs> he but... ended somebody's... Well, yeah, exactly. He took away somebody's fucking like, career <laughs> that they had worked their whole life on. Or then uh, another one of the stories was that, uh, okay, you might have you might know this, this time in the 80s when Ronald Reagan went to Berlin and he laid a wreath at a cemetery where a lot of uh, Nazis, Nazis were buried. Were buried well, yeah. uh, apparently Michael Moore was friends with somebody whose parents died in the Holocaust or maybe they were Holocaust survivors. I can't remember. So they went over and posed as media and, and unraveled a big banner that said, uh, we're here from Michigan. They killed my parents or something. Mm-hmm. So they told the story. In fact, we saw a picture of Michael Moore holding the banner in the 80s mm-hmm. and they were, of course, kicked out. It's a good story. You know, it's it's very noble that he did it. But how am I supposed to like how am I supposed to apply that in the struggle to fight Trump? And what did it even accomplish in the struggle to fight Reagan? Right. Right. Like it's not it's not practical well, advice. Well, first of all, the whole because that wasn't the only terrible thing or sort of like snafu that Reagan had during that trip, because that was also when he gave a speech making it seem like he helped liberate one of the camps when in fact he had just been an actor in a film where that happened. (laughs) (laughs) And that's again, that's sort of a, maybe that relates to Trump in the sense that he was like definitely sundowning at that point. Well, I wish Michael (laughs) Moore had said that because that's a good point. Uh, There was a story that wasn't about him, but actually it was about a librarian who helped him get a book published. It was, I'm sure you remember the book Stupid White Men, now available at a Goodwill near you. (laughs) (laughs) One of the foundational texts yeah. this podcast it was supposed to come and out, and our lives it was supposed to come out like a week after 9-11 but <laughs> mm. it was it was pulled and michael moore said this at a talk that he gave and a librarian was listening and sent out a newsletter to like rally the troops of librarians to you know pressure the publisher and you know the rest was history and you know i guess it's a nice story but why do i care about stupid white men i mean there are, i think there are more inspiring stories of one the man. inspiring story ends with and then i got a book deal yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like, i got well, my royalties yeah, yeah. well that was basically how it <laughs> <Yeah>. ended <laughs> key to i think michael moore's flawed logic is he he then like did a list of you know times when one person made a difference you know, I was talking about this person, that person, and he mentioned Rosa Parks as one of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can, I can tell by the looks on your faces that that's a very ahistorical reading of Rosa Parks. <laughs> yes. You know, she was not just, well, you know, a actually, person who stumbled onto the bus and right, right. Well, and, and it's actually the way that that, the way that that parable has always been, mm-hmm. well, the way it's become a parable about, like, an individual's act of, you know, it's like, it was part of a campaign, mm-hmm. and she, she was like part of a movement it's uh she was the face of a campaign yeah that they all agreed yeah, on yeah because it's, the woman who originally did that was like an un like a teen mom mm-hmm. who was unwed and she was like listen not me yeah <laughs> yeah and you know michael moore knows that does he yeah i think he does uh, I, I think know- he might know it in kind of a historical sense but i'm not sure he knows it in the sense of like you know well real progress requires organization and struggle mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't require mm-hmm. you know it's not manifest in like these individual gestures that you can then do a broadway show about like mm-hmm. 10 years later about how you got a book deal or whatever <laughs> now i yeah. wish the show were just as like disciplined as being you know a series of anecdotes around a theme but there were also some comedy bits that he threw in 
Why do these people think they're comedian? Why does everyone think they're a well, comedian? You know, I, well, like when you when you listen to comedians talk, like they talk about like what what a struggle it is to get to the hour, you know. And this show is two hours, mm-hmm. so you know you can imagine there was some padding there. Yeah. Uh, but he did a, a comedy bit, like a game show parody called "Stump the Canadian," where you know he got a Canadian from an, the audience and like a Columbia educated American from the audience to see who knew how much about each other's country. Mm-hmm. Actually, it got foiled because the American won. So his thesis didn't work out. There was mm-hmm. another bit where he did like some shtick about stuff that we're not allowed to bring on airplanes anymore, which I don't know why that's... Classic Trump. bit. It's not Trump's fault. Like, he didn't do that. Well, that was in Fahrenheit 9-11, right? Yeah. The, the bit, right? It, was in, it was in Fahrenheit 11 <laughs> as part of his complaint that they weren't tightening... Do you, do you remember this? Yeah. If, I, if I'm remembering it rightly, that what he's complaining about is that you used to be allowed to bring like 10 lighters on a flight, and then yeah. but now you can only bring like two lighters on a flight or whatever. And it's part of just like the incoherent mess Because that earlier that he's saying yes. that you know, the Bush administration is cultivating... It's constricting civil liberties and stuff. And then yeah. it's like, but you can still bring all these dangerous things on, like... Like, and then yeah. he shows you footage of yeah. them, like in an airport, confiscate like the security confiscating stuff. But then his c- criticism is that they're not confiscating enough. But this great yeah. wasn't even as good as that because uh, it was more about like the absurdity of some of the things. So he was talking about like apparently you can't bring a leaf blower onto a plane, for instance. So of course he pulls out a leaf blower and starts playing with it. Oh wow! Um, so it was like prop based. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Michael Moran's now carrot top. Yeah. He's going after that um, coveted market. Well, and fuck you, Michael. And it didn't happen the night I saw. But I understand that there are some nights where he brings out a celebrity to do an interview on stage. So mm-hmm. Brian Cranston was one of them. Br- bring uh, out like Viggo Mortensen, um, all the yeah. all the celebs in the Michael Moore orbit. Uh, my, uh, Morgan Spurlock was one, and apparently, uh, <laughs> apparently, a few nights ago, um, Mr. Politics himself, Jim Carrey, was uh, the celebrity. Oh, wow. oh my god! Was he talking about vaccines? Yeah, <laughs> I really hope he did. So uh, that's that's uh, uh, theater corner. Uh, Next up, Mike Lanos News Minute. Uh, What happened in the world this week? Yeah. Boop, 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 boop. Uh, that might cover everything I have to say about the terms of my surrender. I have a, I have a, like, I have a, a segue, I guess. Like when sure. you were talking about how Michael Moore does comedy, uh, I had an article out recently about Bill Maher. Yes. And, and it's really funny that, so in addition to the angered reactions that are from like, I don't know, pretty obviously alt-right type people, like whose timelines are just like, you know, retweeting stuff from like Sam Harris and like shit like that. One of the other reactions, the one that's been more interesting to me, because those other people are a dime a dozen, is people being like, you realize Bill Maher is a comedian, right? And I just Uh. think it's really interesting because, first of all, I don't really understand people who find Bill Maher funny. But yeah. but secondly, it speaks to like this kind of weird symbiosis that's happened where um, comedians are now like comedians are pundits now, right. and also pundits like Michael Moore think they're funny. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody thinks they can do both things, and when you try to do both things, and you're good at you know only good at one of them, or in many cases good at neither of them. It's pretty. It's pretty bad. And it's kind of like a get out of jail free card. Like you remember on his famous Crossfire interview when when Tucker Carlson, you know, I think fairly challenged mm-hmm. my, uh, John Stewart on his uh, kind of blowjob interview with John Kerry, mm-hmm. right? And, and uh, John Stewart said, uh, "I my lead in is Crank Yankers." You know, it it, it's so disingenuous. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, especially because those shows sell themselves as a way to be 
politically engaged to be up on the news. And, you know, I even remember, I remember freshman year of college watching The Daily Show with a friend of mine. And he was like, well, wait, like, why are you laughing? Like, you're just seeing this 15 seconds of C-SPAN. You don't know what came before or Mm. after it. And I was like, I was enjoying it. So I got, um, Mm. you know, offended. And I was like, well, you know, I'm sure it was like how they say. And it probably certainly wasn't, you know, because... These shows, specifically The Daily Show, started off as like a parody of very serious um, cable news. And like Stephen Colbert started off as a parody of Papa Papa Bear Bill O'Reilly. And like they've become that. Mm-hmm. But for this like left wing or sort of supposedly you know, culturally liberal, yeah, culturally yeah. liberal, fiscally mm-hmm. conservative, <laughs> on the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like Trevor Noah, it's like who the fuck is into that? Did guy? you guys see his recent take where he compared Antifa to ISIS? Oh, yeah, I that was pretty good. Vegan ISIS. Well, yeah. again, again, because I love that because it's like taking something that people you know are vaguely against and then putting it against a totally easy yeah. target, vegans. And, and, like, <laughs> and his whole shtick is being able to say, well, I grew up in apartheid South Africa, so I see, I saw I division, all... I saw division firsthand. And I really... have all of the answers because I am from South Africa. Yeah. Well, there was that, there was that really great, uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but that uh, counterpoint to Trevor Noah, for some reason in the last year, had an article in the New York Times about yes. South Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was uh, a, resoundingly... A divided, a divided people are easier to rule. Yes. Right, right. It's literally Which is an interesting, It's an interesting way to put apartheid, <laughs> oh, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I can't remember. We should try to maybe find that BuzzFeed article. Maybe we could link to it underneath because it's actually sure. pretty good. It deserves a plug. I don't think it got the attention it deserved. But um, Trevor Noah also had that great bit in 2012 where, uh, I don't know if you guys saw the footage, but he's he, he's doing this whole routine oh. that's about a, a miners' strike yes, that happened in South Africa. And people got police. murdered. And his entire bit is like, he, he just keeps doing like, an intensely South African accent for these like working class miners yeah. and th- who got shot. And then he's basically the, the punchline is like, you know, why didn't they just move? Like, you know, it's they were warned. Test. It's like, so it's so disturbing. I, I mean, I always knew Trevor Noah was bad and I've never found him funny, but that is like, a whole other I don't know. Problem. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think for me, I've always found him just kind of obsequious. I remember Nick Pickerton retweeting one of his bits a while ago and the whole bit was like, uh, he was talking about, and this is supposed to be comedy, I guess he's like, you know, Obama, uh, whenever he'd like, uh, you know, enter a room, it was like he was jumping into a music video. <sighs> he would, he yeah. did this like, and Nick Pickerton just... was like, is there anywhere he won't go? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Well, that was something that really was disturbing to me to see the, when he was hired to replace Jon Stewart, you know, there were people sort of dredging up the classic, mm. the classic thing where you go through the comedian's timeline and of course you find bad racist shit Mm -hmm. that's not even funny it's Mm -hmm. just like or bad sexist shit Mm -hmm. or shit Mm -hmm. that's just making fun of fat people or whatever Mm -hmm. but you know easily you know punching down group you can and then there was this whole cadre of people that came out and they were like oh you know it's like it's a symptomatic thing of being between you know these two worlds of being a minority and like living in that space Mm. of of edginess and i'm like these are just bad jokes, guys. Yeah. These are just like fucking yeah. not funny. Like it's just not. Can, it's just not funny, and the politics funny. of it are bad as well. Yeah. Like it's really that simple. Yeah, yeah. Ah, masters! What do these things want, and why are they here? You still don't get it, do you, boy? They have recruited the rich and the powerful. They're running the whole show. Wake up! They're all about you, all around you. Blinded us to the truth. <laughs> 
Fuck. They are safe as long as they are not discovered. I don't know what they are or where they came from, but we gotta stop them. Stay away from me. Put these on. They have us. Look at them. They're everywhere. Our owner. We have no other choice. I don't like this one bit. Leave it alone, man. It ain't none of my business. Ain't none of yours. We have been lulled into a trance. Listen to what I'm saying to you. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. Control us! You're sending some kind of signals on the TV sets. I've got one that can see. Mama don't like tattletale. Now we start spilling some blood. Let's go! Push I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick And I'm all out of bubblegum. So uh, we watched a movie this week. Um, <laughs> the, the movie we watched was a suggestion of violets and a favorite of mine, mm-hmm. uh, John Carpenter's They Live, which I think Luke saw for the first yeah, time that's uh, right. this week. Oh my God, you hadn't seen yeah, it before? Yeah, I liked it. Oh, yeah. Great. Best known today, I think, for two things. One, for having inspired Shepard Fairey's art project of writing Obey on mm-hmm. things, uh, which now you can get on t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it's like it's like perfect of this kind of like, corporate trend to be like we can we can deflect the criticism by kind of ironically embracing it right here's Uh, some che guevara lip balm yeah yeah (laughs) actual product and the other thing it's famous for is the meme of somebody putting on the sunglasses and seeing the world as it really is and actually the i guess the third thing it's most famous for is the six minute fight scene between uh, roddy piper and uh, keith david five minutes 20 Oh, excuse me, excuse me. The movie came out in 1988, I think in November 88, just as the Reagan administration was drawing to a close, Mm -hmm. for all you history buffs out there. (laughs) Cool facts! (laughs) Uh, Roddy Piper plays a laid-off steelworker, Nada, uh, who has become a drifter, and he wanders from shantytown to shantytown looking for work. Unfortunately, it's hard to get work because of the goddamn unions. I, yeah, that was a little off. No, wasn't no, it? no, no. It's just because it, for me, that's that is a legitimate problem. Where sometimes it's like, yeah, sorry, there are like a finite number of jobs, and unions have protection over those finite number of jobs. It's not. It's not like unions are bad. Come on, John Carpenter's on our fucking side. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Okay, okay. I mean, you saw the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah no, you no, that's no, true. Yeah. Meanwhile, while he's trying to find jobs, he he gets inklings of some sort of an underground rebellion that's going on. But every every time he gets a little closer to figuring out what it is. The powers that be, the the military, the militarized police come in and fuck it up. But what he does come across is a box of sunglasses from one of these uh, sort of resistance resistance groups. And when he puts on the sunglasses, he discovers that all of the rich people are actually space aliens from uh, some faraway planet and that uh, all of the consumable goods, uh, all the advertising, everything on TV has a coded message that if you put on the glasses it says obey consume, consume. Yes. marry and reproduce yes so he spends the rest of the movie trying to get the word out there but people people don't want to in fact he he even has to beat up somebody for six straight five minutes and 20 seconds <laughs> his for, only friend for them to even put on the glasses which mm-hmm. is a crude but effective metaphor uh-huh. about uh the the resistance of people to face the truth when it's presented to them also a, a, a reference to John Ford's The Quiet Man, oh. which has which has a very long fight sequence between two guys who are actually friends. Oh, it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. That's why uh, that's why we have somebody from Film Comments on. So. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so how does the movie end? Well, what's the thrilling conclusion? Uh, the movie ends with Roddy Piper and Keith David uh, infiltrating, you know, the the base, mm-hmm. basically, of operations. And just as he's about to die, Roddy Piper intersects the, what is it, the satellite signal mm-hmm. um, that's... They're broadcasting just, all the... There's one satellite dish, I guess, that controls the entire world, and he found it. And mm-hmm. He destroyed it. And, and it was it, in LA at a, at a small cable news station headquarters <laughs> for some reason. And, ba- but... and basically, it's like it's <laughs> emitting rays that make us not see the aliens for what they really are. And mm-hmm. in a great montage at the end, we find out that uh, Siskel and Ebert are aliens. All the sex and violence on the screen has gone too far for me. I'm fed up with it. Filmmakers like George Romero and John Carpenter have to show some restraint. They're simply... No, it's only Siskel. Oh, because oh, I think you, Ebert is like, I think you'd see part of his hand if he's like normal, which is ironic because I would see Ebert as the zombie monster. I, I Interesting. Think that, I mean, Alien. I think they were both uh, comparable uh, in terms of their in terms of their taste. They were both. Yes. Well, in, in the movie, we see the, the Siskel alien say, "Ah, oh, these oh, these these filmmakers are going too far. John, like John Carpenter. John Carpenter and George Romero. Enough yes. with the sex and violence. Yes, because um, Ebert wrote this really withering review of The Thing. I've been, mm. I actually am. Um, I wrote a uh, Blu-ray booklet for Arrow Films about The Thing. So I've seen it probably like eight times <laughs> over the past three weeks. Every time totally pleasurable. But he wrote this totally withering review where he's like, it's just like this gore fest for teenagers. It's so juvenile and gross and like, what the fuck is wrong with John Carpenter? And it's like, congratulations on being super wrong. Well, yeah, as wrong it... as he was about Taste of Cherry, another hmm. another review I love to fucking bring out. Siskel and Ebert, even though they were both like kind of, you know, liberal-ish guys, uh, they were... I guess they came to prominence as TV personalities in the Reagan Thatcher mm-hmm. era, and they were always beating the drum about some sort of culture war thing. Um, they, they had a they had a segment on video nasties. Yes, yes. You know, they had a whole campaign against "I Spit on Your Grave," mm-hmm. which you know, all it did was make "I Spit on Your Grave" more popular. Exactly. It would have totally gone unnoticed if if they hadn't. Oh yeah. But uh, I guess an important plot point that I think you left out was that the human power elite are actually conspiring with the aliens, right? Mm-hmm. When they go yes. into the kind of camp at the end or the the, the HQ, mm-hmm. all the sort of ruling class are sitting around being told by the, you know, chief alien or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, our profits are up by 30, or your profits are up by 30% yeah. or whatever. And we, we see one guy who's like let who's let Roddy Piper in, who's sold out to the aliens. And yeah. he, he's not an alien. And he, ba- and he says, hey, you know, we sell out every day. You know, why don't, Might as well be on the winning side. Don't you exactly. want some of that wealth to trickle down to you, basically? Mm-hmm. I thought you boys understood. It's business. That, that's all it is. You still don't get it, do you, boys? There ain't no countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything, the whole goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want. What's wrong with having it good for a change? Now, they're going to let us have it good if we just help them. They're going to leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life, too. Now, I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. You do it to your own kind. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. See you, boys. There's generally a sense uh, that 
in exploitation movies, you're able, because nobody's paying attention and because as long as it hits the right beats, you're able to put in more social commentary and say things that are maybe a little more politically transgressive than they mm-hmm. would be otherwise. I've always been a little uh, hesitant about that because for the most part, you know, exploitation movies are just as bad as any other kind of movie. But <laughs> yeah. but in the 80s, there are a handful of kind of horror genre type filmmakers who were the only ones producing anything sort of left-wing or politically radical. Well, Wes Craven was doing it in the 70s, too. Mm. Um, But obviously, because history changes how we perceive these things, like, people are more willing to go back and sort of reclaim these things. But as you say, I mean, 99% of these things were just total shit. Mm. But But to show boobs. Yeah. (laughs) But somewhere within there, there's George Romero, and there's Larry Cohen, and there's John Carpenter. Wes Craven. And Wes Craven. He's so good. Yeah, yeah he's fine. R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see the, 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 the Nightmare on Elm Street where it's like totally, it just totally like folded in on itself? That's part three, Dream Warriors. No, 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 no. No, no, no. no. Oh, There's New a, Nightmare? That's the one where you see the actress play herself. Oh, yeah. That's a Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was really good. You know, I watched all of those movies, you know, basically in the span of a week when I was in uh, high school. It's time to give them a revisit, I revisit think. Revisit them, yeah. yeah. No, Dream, Warrior, Dream Warriors is really good. But the the one where it just, uh, New Nightmare is like, I hate to use this term, but it's really ahead of its time. Ah, yes. <laughs> More relevant now than ever. <laughs> In but, the Trump era. <laughs> but the, the thing I, I find most charming about They Live, even though it's been kind of reclaimed by hipsters lately, mm. and it, it's now kind of like, you know... Like, Will like, looked at like, me like, when he said that. <laughs> listeners, he's looked right at me. I, me too, me too. And even though it's reclaimed by us hipsters, like at the time it was just a totally under the radar. It was a, mm-hmm. it was a vehicle for a pro wrestler... Exactly. Um, nothing about it looks cool. And even it's a movie that grinds dead in its tracks to a halt to show a five minute and 20 second fight scene uh, <laughs> ju- because you've got a wrestler in it and you've got to show a fight scene. Like John Carpenter, like there, there's nothing hip about this movie. No. And he seems to be, you know, at, at the risk of sounding like kind of a bougie guy, uh, he se- he wants to talk directly to the working class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I mean, the film the film begins with this, you know, sort of tracking shot by the train tracks, mm. and you see this graffiti, and um, it it's there's this harmonica music, the classic hobo music. And there's something <laughs> about his music, by the way, that that just it's so fitting to the movie because it's like turner, turner, yep. like it, it communicates. Nothing's ever going to get tedium, better. and exactly. you know, that, like, that op- don't that, even try. That, yeah, yeah, that yeah. opening montage is is all about you know kind of deindustrialization and stuff, and there are a mm-hmm. lot of allusions to that, mm-hmm. right? Because the the main character says something about like he has a conversation with someone about you know oh the steel mills in Detroit or whatever they're all closing. Keith and, David's character, right? That's right. We you know we gave them uh, like we were restrained in our like request for pay rises or whatever, but they paid us back by outsourcing the jobs. Mm-hmm. And, um, so pretty explicitly, well, very explicitly, and I guess that's that that's what interested me about the film because. There's a lot about it where it's really hitting you over the head um, in a way that normally I wouldn't like, but I did like it. I mean, all the stuff with obey, consume, and the signs and stuff is something I would normally associate with the politics of maybe ad busters. Right. Um, it's something that like 20 years later you would see in ad busters where it would be, you know, the centerfold would be a Nike check mark and it would say like, 
just kill it or yes. something. Maybe <laughs> the difference between Adbusters and this is mm. like Adbusters is so joyless. Right. Well, this like, ha- this so, and this this, is fun. this has an explicit class politics to right. it. Yeah. And right? also the, the other thing about Adbusters is that it's like we're decoding advertising, and I'm like, advertising mm-hmm. is on the note. Yeah, that right. is literally yeah. what advertising mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And like, I know people who work in advertising and when they cast they have no trouble posting the most fucking racist casting descriptions Mm -hmm. and i think you know when people get mad about you know writers or directors not using you know women people of color etc it's not just literally one person driving this fucking thing it's many many people yeah it's a whole institution yeah it's an industry it's called the industry for a fucking reason and it's like the idea that there was a glossy magazine Mm. mimicking these things Mm. and being like we're gonna tell you what's really going on it's Mm. like i can look at fucking yeah we know what's going on and the and the alternative (laughs) of ad busters right contra this movie where there's an explicit class politics right is the the alternative was always just it was just an alternative consumption politics Mm -hmm. so in a in a way it it gelled with with um, a kind of anarcho-liberalism, I guess yes. you could say. And I think we're going to have an episode where we talk about adbusters in to. the future. Yeah. But um, I don't think the the contradictions of the adbusters model uh, were better manifest in anything than in their black spot sneaker thing, where the yeah. idea was that it was like an anti-brand. Mm-hmm. But it's just a brand. <laughs> and the ad that mm-hmm. they had in the magazine, it had like a little red spot in the front. I remember very clearly there was, an, a, there was like a little arrow pointing to it. It's like sweet spot for kicking corporate ass, you know? <laughs> and you said yeah. that key to Adbusters was this whole kind of like new agey, like you've got to unplug and get out there, to nature. There was a big and, thing about that. Yeah. You need to go on a media the diet. Leaves. There was a whole thing about, <laughs> there was a whole thing advocating that you go into your garden and you you pick dandelions and you make tea out of them and you sit there Good like God. reconnecting with nature. Garden? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I don't know if this was originally an ad busters, but it was mm. definitely something I saw during this time where mm. it was like uh, silhouettes of brands. Yeah. And then on the other page was silhouettes of leaves and it's like, well, which one can you identify? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. fucking trees don't have a PR agent. Yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah. Trees can't buy ad space. So like, <laughs> I understand. Like, it's fine if you don't know what a fucking maple leaf looks like. Yeah. But that one's easy to recognize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the movie, I feel like, is so... I don't mean this pejoratively, but crude in its politics that mm-hmm. I think just from the the brief description we've, we've given people, they sort of get the idea. I mean, is there anything else we really even need to talk about well, in terms of the movie? I think there's something about the lack of nuance and subtlety to the politics that I like because mm-hmm. I, we're constantly being told that well, Republicans and Democrats and whatever, we're all members of the same team, ultimately. We all want America to be great. <laughs> um, you know, we, we can all seek compromise and everybody's trying to do what's best. And this is a movie that says, no, there are, mm. there are people who are working for themselves only mm. and, they're, and they're class compatriots. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's nice to, to have that. Yeah. 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 And I mean, also, because I saw this probably like the spring after um, Occupy Wall Street. Mm. And there's so, it's so strange because like John Carpenter is the thing, right? That totally predicted or in some weird ways, you know, mirrored the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's blood testing. It's all male environment. Infection is spreading, et cetera, et cetera. But this totally like predicts Occupy Wall Street. Like when they clear the park, I was like, Oh, it was very, uh, yeah, I didn't even I was think like of that. very, I would like the whole mm. setup in that park was exactly like what Zuccotti Park was because mm. and I can say that because I actually went there and talked to people. Mm. It was like very like 
chilling in a way mm. to see that um, you know play out years and years before. Mm. There's also something to the way the movie depicts poverty. Uh, yes. you know, I'll say something nice about Michael Moore. Actually, oh, one, you see, one yeah, of the things I liked yeah. about the big one when we watched it was it was set you know at the height of the Clinton era when everything seemed one, and he was going around and talking to all these you know people in the Midwest who said, mm-hmm. "Well, there's no one to vote for. You know, there's yeah. there's no yeah. hope." I, I feel like you know in in the Reagan era America this movie depicts like he shows us these tent cities and he encourages us to actually be outraged at it because the ethos of the time would be prosperity is here this is the absolute best and yeah sure there are there are a bunch of poor people but you know they're always going to be losers in society so you know what the what what are you going to do about it like he encourages us to actually be outraged by it yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought you were going to tell the story about how because Violet brought up Occupy Wall Street about how uh, you saw Michael Moore at Occupy Wall Street I did (laughs) see uh, Michael Moore at Occupy Wall Street he uh, he you know was he doing a reading from Stupid White Men (laughs) I actually once saw uh, Michael Moore do a reading at the Union Square Barnes and Noble where I heard some of the stories. You, you seem to be running into Michael Moore a suspicious number of times. Do you uh, I, I just pulling off my mask to reveal that I am, in fact, Michael Moore. Whoa. <laughs> Something else I want to mention about, about the play. Michael Moore, I guess, endorsed Bernie in the primaries. Mm-hmm. In the play, uh, to his credit, he says a lot of the things about Hillary Clinton and her campaign that people like us say. Right, after his ridiculously obsequious like, stand-up <laughs> show that he did before the election. Yeah, but he doesn't... The name Bernie Sanders didn't come up a single time. Mm-hmm. He, he mentioned Elizabeth Warren once or twice. Mm-hmm. He mentioned Rachel Maddow once or twice, which means that I guess he's like... Ah, uh, yes, two of the great populists of, <laughs> of American politics. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, yeah, isn't it weird how, like, Rachel Maddow just does the Daily Show on... On MSNBC, CNN? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I was like, I like. Is she? Does she try to be funny? I, I don't think I've ever. I think she's her. supposed to be funny. She yeah. has the same delivery where she's like, you know, she's she's what she's is that? she's a little she's a little wry <laughs> in her delivery and outraged. Yeah. Yeah. And like, what better what better comedy mm-hmm. of the past um, year is there than her not showing anything in Donald Trump's tax? Oh right. yeah, that was great. That was like that was like um a great performance art. Um <laughs> okay, well if you don't have the patience to watch a smart strong woman explain. <laughs> something to you what then, taxes are yeah and what they mean but then there's i mean that was like especially like having actually worked in a newsroom like i'm like this is like this feels like i'm there yeah it feels like i'm just there and we can't get the phones to work and so the host is just forced to vamp because there's nothing there's no content yeah yeah but I was I just thought it was interesting that, you know, Michael Moore, he, he's clearly hedging his bats. And oh, yeah. one of the central mysteries of this podcast is, is he as dumb as he seems? Is he as disingenuous as he seems? Like, how much of this is what he actually believes? And how much of it is him saying, well, I'm on Broadway, I'm playing to a kind of affluent, culturally liberal audience? How mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to Trojan horse some of my ideas in here. I mean, I'm, you know, frankly, having been immersed in his oeuvre and inclined to be less charitable to him because I think if he were better, he would just be better. Yeah. 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 You don't need to take so many shortcuts if yeah. you're, if your politics are more coherent. And I think a lot of the yeah. problems speak to kind of an incoherence in the, in the politics. Well, just even the fact that he disappeared for mm-hmm. as long as he did. And then he was like, he, he appeared not only like just disappeared during the Obama years, 
presumably because he was getting divorced and did not want to share whatever <laughs> profits he made. That's a rumor Whoa. I heard. Michael, but, if you want to do a rebuttal, write in. Yeah, please, please prove me wrong. But I please know, don't sue us. I know <laughs> Violet's just a guest. I had nothing to do with this take. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I, that's, I mean, I've heard that from several people. Right. But he, but I mean, like he also came into the like weighing into the election pretty fucking late. Yeah. Like I mean, I know he was supposedly work, you know, rushing that Trump movie into production, but it's like he was like doing fucking shit the week after. Mm, <laughs> it was like yeah. barely there. Yeah. It's like, where were you? If you think, if you really think you wield this much power, where, where, where were you? Well, you might remember his biggest contribution to the election cycle was actually an out of context monologue from oh, that Trump movie right. where he was talking about like, how Trump's election would be a Molotov cocktail to the establishment. And, and like Trump fans took that out of context and made it look like he was endorsing mm-hmm. Michael, uh, Mike, That's really uh, funny. Donald Trump. And it went viral on like the right wing blogosphere. <laughs> I love shit like that. Uh, a millionaire has the same number of votes as the person without a job. One. And there's more of the former middle class than there are in the millionaire class. So on November 8th, the dispossessed will walk into the voting booth, be handed a ballot, close the curtain, and take that lever, or felt pen, or touch screen, and put a big fucking X in the box by the name of the man who has threatened to upend and overturn the very system that has ruined their lives. Donald J. Trump. They see that the elites who ruined their lives hate Trump. Corporate America hates Trump. Wall Street hates Trump. The career politicians hate Trump. The media hates Trump after they loved him and created him and now hate him. Thank you, media. The enemy of my enemy is who I'm voting for on November 8th. Before we go, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the art and craft of film criticism. Sure. <laughs> you know, you're one of, most film critics, I would say, are kind of uh, liberal-ish. Uh, you're one of the few film critics uh, in kind of the popular press who seems to come at movies from a distinctly left-wing point of view. Mm-hmm. I don't know what my question is, except that, like, is that really conscious on, on, your, on your part? Yes, absolutely, mm-hmm. because I feel like well, first of all, let me just say this. I feel like there are a lot of critics out there who just present a consensus view, mm-hmm. right? But they're presenting themselves as like the cool. So cool, cons- like culturally savvy, yeah. you know, but they ultimately what they're representing is very bourgeois and very status quo. And I feel like the role of film criticism is to create, you know, it's evaluative, obviously, but it's also to create, you know, help generate thoughts around a film, a piece of art, you know, something that somebody spent at least a year making. And even if you don't like it, you have to sort of appreciate it and, um, you know, consider it and, and allow people to sort of have their own thoughts on it based on your thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. So I do make it intentional. I do that intentionally because I feel like um, there is a dearth of that in 
the popular press. I feel like it sounds crass to be like, oh, I'm differentiating myself, differentiating myself from other critics. Mm-hmm. It's because it sounds like, oh, that's her brand. But right. I really believe that it's important because you know you see you see it in the way that the New York Times op-ed section works, where it's like some opinions are worth considering, some mm-hmm. alternative opinions are worth considering, uh, but these ones that actually would challenge the liberal status quo are not. The there. ones that are worth considering are invariably from the right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or just um, fucking fiction like the Brett Stevens climate change shit. Right, like right. you really have to have somebody writing full time on staff about how climate change is bullshit anyway. mm. and fire all your copywriters. <laughs> <laughs> who needs who need who needs like uh, a team of twenty copywriters when you can pay Brett Stevens like nine <laughs> figures or whatever? You know. know. <laughs> yeah, it is it is intentional, and it's like um, I you know Jonathan Rosenbaum is another mm-hmm. sort of like very famous. Um, I guess person who comes from the left and so yeah I think it's um, obviously these are my politics and I feel like it's valuable Um, yeah I don't and I don't think ever you you know you should ever sort of just accept that status quo and you should always be you know working against it even if you are part of like the critical professional aesthete class I I, I do get a sense like in in a lot of criticism you know people want to be part everyone likes to think of themselves as kind of iconoclastic thinkers but Mm -hmm. everyone also derives comfort from consensus yeah and And everyone wants to be like look at me I'm part of the scene yeah Yeah, yeah, you know which I think something that well one of the the major subtexts of a lot of like if you know if someone was to get access to will and my dms to each other and see all the all the different things we're complaining about (laughs) to each other on a daily basis you know is kind of a feeling that a lot of the i guess as it were the the official cultural industry and a lot of the kind of um apparatus of commentary that's attached to it uh, you know the, the criticism such as it is operates within like a very narrow kind of you know and it's it's i mean i guess you know some things are are critically panned, but I mean that's often too when they're commercial failures or whatever. Right. There's there's a feel I, I certainly feel like I don't want to speak for Will, but I certainly feel like when I read a lot of the film the types of people who become film critics at major newspapers, it seems like what they're giving is much more a consumer review. Uh, and that's kind of there is something explicitly apolitical about that Absolutely. project. Um, or I mean it it's only political cryptically because because you know it's it's kind of cryptically channeling the ideology of just mass culture. Right. You know? And I and I would like to add that, you know, my my ability to sort of approach things from a left perspective um, comes from the fact that I don't write for one of those publications, mm. right? Mm. And I I feel like, you know, with the death of so many alt weeklies, you know, that, you know, fucking village voice is over, yeah. which is insane to me, which is yeah. like so sad. And, you know, Chicago Reader too, a, a lot of these places that used to really consistently and many, many others. Um, even, you know, Armin White wrote for an alt weekly and mm-hmm. his writing for it was really, you know, that whole publication was so challenging and unique. And so it's like it there is a responsibility to introduce different strains of thought and not just be like, you know. But sadly, even most alt weeklies in recent years, I don't see. Oh, yeah. You know, well, no, it's they, pretty consensus stuff. Frankly. Well, that's what's so weird is that like there was it was like people just sort of like who lasted to the end were like not the strongest. Mm. They were just. You know, I, with the obviously with the exception of Melissa Anderson, who is like so fucking fantastic, and I'm really glad she's going to be at what? four columns now. But where where is she? She was at the she was like head, chief uh, film critic at the Village Voice. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, um, I, I would think a lot of people get into film criticism because they're kind of fanboys first and foremost, mm. so they don't have a 
combative relationship with the uh, you know uh, entertainment industrial complex. Yes, because it's uh, only birth movies death. <laughs> yeah, right, right. My favorite website. Um, like they, they think it's basically fundamentally fine, and they and they're and as such, they're happy to work within the confines they're set out. They're happy to like you know not to use the straw man example of Marvel movies, but right. like if a Mar- if a Marvel movie comes out, they say, well, we've got to review this movie on its own terms of being a Marvel movie rather than question the apparatus that produces it. Actually, you don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even if you, because it's like I fucking grew up, you know, reading uh, uh, comic books mostly mm-hmm. like alternative comics but then i worked at a a comic book store and i did immerse myself in the world of like capes let's say and like there's no like i feel like good comic book fans and the one that the type that i sort of have is like you have a conflicted relationship Mm -hmm. to it because you know that the way that they work is that they'll have a really great writer come in save a series and then they'll get they'll replace him with a not so great writer mm-hmm. and the series will sort of decline and so that you can't have you can never have a total loyalty mm-hmm. to any even if it's like your guy even if your guy the, the 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 superhero that you always buy is the flash or whatever it's gonna vary like there are gonna be issues if you're a completist and you buy all of them there are gonna be issues that you don't read and like having that savvy is just and just sort of being like well, you know, at least it's trying, and at least, you know, there's, like, some good performances, and at least, like, you know, um, fucking Doctor Strange is great because they did, like, some weird stuff with the visuals that's sort (laughs) of like the comic book. I feel like Marvel knows this. They Mm -hmm. know that they can put stuff in those movies that will, like, be catnip to critics, and they'll be like, you know, make a critic feel smart. Oh, yeah, that's Shane. Oh yeah, I guess this is dealing with themes of violence and, 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 and also, not actually. <laughs> they all gesture towards politics in some way. Yes, um, but often quite incoherently, right? Of course, exactly. Yeah. But and aesthetically too, yeah. they're incoherent. They yeah. mean it's like, oh, this is like a '70s thriller mm-hmm. yeah. in one scene. Yeah, <laughs> but also mm-hmm. like th- this appeals to critics because. Oftentimes when I see critics evaluate movies that are explicitly political, Mm -hmm. critics pride themselves in saying, well, I'm not going to judge the movie on the basis of its politics because that's subjective. I'm going to judge it on the basis of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And the reason I don't like, I don't dislike this movie because it's conservative. I dislike it because it's boring. And they, they say this as if this makes them such nuanced and idiosyncratic thinkers. Or there was, you had a kind of an inverse version of that with the critical reaction to American Sniper, where it was people twisting themselves in knots to, like to because it was like a competently made film with mm-hmm. like right wing politics. Just, just embrace it as a, yeah. like a solid conservative movie if yeah. you like it. Or or just accept uh, the premise that you can't like draw a simple dichotomy between the aesthet- aesthetics are inherently mm-hmm. political, and you yeah. can't draw a simple dichotomy and just like own that and all the nuance and texture that comes with it and be a better critic, please. Yes. I don't even know who I was addressing there, but every like yeah, not, not, all not, the not, critic, like yeah, <laughs> <all> the critics, <laughs> yes. yeah, except for Nick Pinkerton who. I think wrote very fair. Uh, he wrote. He some, liked it. He yeah. liked it. And he mm-hmm. wrote some really great. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote something for film comment about it that's really mm-hmm. good. So, mm-hmm. fuck off, idiots who don't <laughs> like it. I actually still haven't seen it, but I guess it would I'm be. I'm sure we'll address we'll, it. On yeah, this, you guys uh, should. Uh, yeah, we could do. We could do an episode. Yeah. One one thing, just since we're like complaining about Marvel, I know we're getting like a little. We're like uh, like we're at fifty minutes now, but uh, I'm having fun. So. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, peeves me most about Marvel and, and kind of the whole culture around it, and I guess blockbusters in general now, is people uh, feel like uh, they want to root for these films. They have an emotional stake oh, yeah. in them oh, yeah. and that kind of thing. Or the and- idea that you would be like subversive by saying, you know, this pop art thing 
actually it's good and yeah. here's why yeah. yeah and it's like yeah. i'm sorry there mm-hmm. is like there's it seems to be again you know people talk about the death of the middle ground mm-hmm. uh you know the middle brow and it's like mm-hmm. that is more than just a budget thing mm-hmm. that means like people who are just like coming out for like you know writing glowing reviews of you know whatever mm-hmm. fucking idiot biopic based on true story shit and then also you know being like actually you know this uh silly kids movie pretty it's pretty smart right well i was i was yeah that's kind of what i was getting at i mean um you know in in matt chrisman's great article for current affairs about uh prestige tv he points out that um you know there's a whole uh generation of critics who've risen in tandem with prestige tv so they have a stake in saying that the latest you know schlocky like over budget thing with Mm -hmm. lots of nudity and violence in it is actually some profound, you know, commentary on, you know, Western civilization or whatever. You know, every, every new uh, overproduced thing with yet another brooding male anti-hero who sits in smoke-filled rooms, yeah. uh, you know, whatever, is actually, you know, he's actually just another, you know, an avatar for our age or whatever. Um, and, and I guess what I'm getting at is it, it really bugs me how with both the critical culture around a lot of stuff and the fan culture, there's this sense that, like, everyone's democratically participating in something Mm -hmm. and it speaks to something I think we touched on earlier in a different uh, part of the conversation which is just uh, people's political expression is increasingly just consumption Mm -hmm. it's like nobody it's it's like where all this uh, everything that's going on in the culture industry today feels like it's related to there's been a, a total decline of like the citizen and the democratic sphere mm-hmm. and uh, you know the voter turnouts in most advanced you know democracies are way way down and people have for decades really resigned themselves now to I mean the whole kind of a uh, you know project of the post-war era that political progress was real and that you know we could mm-hmm. uh, we you know there could be a fundamentally different kind of society people power people power all that being all that being abandoned and you know what's replaced it is this idea that you can part just participating in mass culture whether that's right. as a critic or as a consumer of that um, and that's why there's all and like I think it, that's not unrelated to how uh, you know so much of the uh, controver- the biggest controversies around films or other pieces of art today are not actually about their content. They have to do with these issues of representation in the exactly. films and things like that. So it's not actually about qualitatively changing the content or, you know, that's why one of the great examples of kind of, um, you know, a female-driven movie in the last year was just a, a remake with women of like, you know, a kind of middle-brow, well, less than middle-brow comedy, you know, mm. from, the, from the 1980s instead of like um, you know, I don't know, a I don't know. A film. Chantal Ackerman film. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, whatever. Yvonne you know. Rainer, where are yeah. you? No, yeah. I know. Like, mm. if Yvonne Rayner directed a Marvel movie, it would actually probably be, probably be closer to what reading comics is actually like. Mm-hmm. And the, and that's the uh, the other thing that really you know. I'm sorry, I have to go back to Marvel, but it's it's so annoying to me because again, you have people who will always come out for a character like a superhero because that's their guy, mm. and again, that's something that Marvel knows, and it does doesn't matter what whatever else they do to it and so they put a little critical catnip in there and like what results is just something you know there's always talk about like the marvel sort of like factory right and Mm. dc you know can't get its shit together but what happens when you make a film out of something that is actually a long-running continuous thing is that there's a real flattening and of of perspectives and uh, you know visually and just like what makes comics good actually good at least to me is totally lost 
in these films because again it's like very much like this is a three-act structure it has you know it's going to set up this thing it's predicated on these like cliffhanger this cliffhanger shit and it's like that's not what comics are at all Mm -hmm. and like you know there are like uh from the 80s pre frank miller there are like these great uh you know there's a great run of uh batman where he's like there's i remember some part of it where he's like talking a guy out of suicide and like it's like you would never see that in Mm -hmm. uh you know like a even you know, vulgar auteurist Zack Snyder film, you know? Yeah. Because it's, it's just doing something they're, Well, they're different. all part of like an assembly line. And mm-hmm. they, they, there's a, the Marvel movies are often praised for their quality control, which yeah. means the uniformity. Quality of, control. Yeah. 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 The, the uniformity of their style. Exactly. Um, the, yeah. the, the, the genre has not evolved at all. And yeah. I think that's probably what, um, why they feel so stifling. Yeah. Well, and uh, something else. I mean, just now that we're just running down the bucket list of things that annoy me about Marvel, but I think there, I think, I think Marvel's useful here because I think it's, it's, uh, it reflects so many of the things that we complain about in our DMs on the podcast, on the go, wherever, Um, on the subway, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, You know, um, it sounds like Violet, you, you know, you're like pretty invested in, you know, comic books, like you have a history with them. I definitely don't, but. One of the things that annoys me about Marvel is it's part of this trend of basically big business monetizing like subcultures yeah. and turning them so so the fact that um you might hear someone now say something like um you know I'm a little bit alternative I like to watch uh, Modern Family and The Walking Dead and uh you know well, and I'm I'm, 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 really I'm really into the I'm really into the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy because yeah. you know I have it's my really my tastes are a little bit out there and it's mm-hmm. like no you like the like the biggest mo- biggest budget movies <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and that has to do with like um you know the fact that uh, like e- like everything is nerd culture now. Like yeah. Game of Thrones is one of the most popular things on TV. They figured out a way to turn nerds into like a, a cultural identity. Like it's right. identity well, politics. Well, because yeah. the other thing that you what's well, a consumer identity? It is a con- yeah. yeah, but exactly. and, but they specifically court them by, for example, having Comic Con, and you know mm-hmm. they make if George Clooney's in a superhero movie, he has to come do the panel at Comic Con, and yeah, then like have. and then like you you've courted that that demographic, and you've and they've made them feel like or somebody like Chris. Hardwick or mm-hmm. Kevin Smith are these, you know, uh, selected people who come out and they are the representatives of nerd culture. Yeah. And you can you, you can identify with them, even though they're on the payroll of the studios. Right, right. I mean, I feel like all of this really began with Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, mm-hmm. where the studios sort of stood, you know, stood up and they're like, oh, wait, these people really care about they're shit. They're they're you know they're passionate. They're mm-hmm. nerdy about things, right? Isn't that's 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 part of the essence of what a nerd is? Um, so why don't we just totally start tailoring things to them? Because this this is an audience that is uh, you know primarily white, primarily at least middle class, mm-hmm. probably you know middle class to upper middle class to very wealthy. So why, let's just like dig into that. Let's you know double down on that and see what happens. And it's you know it's paid off. And there has been no, as I said before, there has been no evolution in the genre the way that there was with you know horror films. Mm-hmm. Like you know Psycho came out and everything really changed. And it's like where is that there is no there is no well, evolution first of all now everyone because they've seen the nerd culture has become like a form of identity politics yeah uh, they, they 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 all now want to think that they're nerds right and also because if everybody's a nerd yeah. nobody's a nerd exactly for God's sake. Like, if everything's good if yeah. everything yeah. But, yeah but also these people like the fact that these movies are uniform and everything because it plays into you know it plays into the obsessive nature of it they're able to watch it and say this is tailored to my 
to, to the consensus specifications of what Batman should be. Right, right, right. You know? Or, yeah. Okay, can I just talk about another thing that bugs me? Sure. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so one of the things that really perplexes me about, uh, I guess, these big blockbusters, whether it's Marvel or anything else, and also Prestige TV, how it's developed, is mm-hmm. the fact that like so much of it seems to be about like its cliffhangers and its disclosure of yes. information and yes. stuff, which seems to be a big regression because it, it's actually much more along the lines of like earlier forms of TV or comic books where things were serialized. Mm-hmm. And but the but the reason it's happening, at least as I see it, is interesting. Like I think it's because these things have to align with I really think social media drives like so much of this stuff because oh, totally. it is the whole infrastructure through which all the traffic of the you know is 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 directed. And so things have to be uh they have to be fed through the take industrial complex. There mm-hmm. have to be there has to be all this raw material well, like, Even if it's not narratively interesting, uh, all these little disclosures of like, mm-hmm. um, and 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 every film has to have you know a series of trailers, which then have like think pieces written about them and things like that. It's just this endless, this endless churn, and, and, and yet, and yet, even the like, I'm sorry, I'll let someone else yeah. talk in a second. Ooh. Even with uh, like. Like we went to see Rogue One, um, mm-hmm. and which I was like so infuriated by. It actually made me angry. Um, I guess unlike comic books, I was into Star Wars as a kid, and you know I was a little more. I went into it like really wanting to enjoy it because I was, you know, it's okay. It's not like The Force Awakens. It's a prequel, so it's mm-hmm. going to be set in and. Um, it doesn't even the thing is the the promise of these things is that they're like they can be industry standard and they're going to get all the nerd things right it's going to be tailored to you they can't even do that Rogue One doesn't work as a prequel at all it's it like completely alters the Star Wars universe that it's supposed to be living or they're supposed to be uh, recreating Mm -hmm. um and like it seems to do that for just the crassest of reasons. Like you have to have a bit, you have because everything has to be big and exploding. And like somehow the Rebel Alliance has to have a whole giant fleet, even though in the original like Star Wars movie they're just this scrappy little thing that can yeah. like they can throw thirty crappy ships against the Death Star. Mm-hmm. Like, like I don't, I don't even like they can't even get that kind of thing right. right. And 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 it just seems like all this stuff fails on its own terms. And now I'm going to let one of you guys talk. Well, I was going to say, it's very funny you bring up, I have a funny story about Rogue One. So I was on a flight um, with my boyfriend and, you know, they have the little TVs where you can watch whatever you want. And he put on Rogue One and I put on Om Shanti Om. Oh, great uh, film, based, yeah. Based on a recommendation I heard on the Important Cinema oh, Club podcast. terrific. Um, and he was like, kind of like, oh my God, you're watching that? And I'm like, Hell yeah, I'm watching this. And then, like, he was watching Rogue One, and he got so mad, and he's like, that looks great. And I'm like, yeah, it is fucking great. You made the wrong choice. Because it's like, I have come to, probably, like, year and a half, two years ago, I just made this decision where it's like, I'm not watching any more of these. Like, I just don't see a point in spending time with them, um, no matter what people say. Because they're all, again, like, they are uniform. They are the same. And, you know, um, what you were talking about earlier, where mm-hmm. there is, like, this think piece culture that fuels so much of this. Yeah. You can see that in uh, The Leftovers, where a guy, mm-hmm. a showrunner, based an episode about um, Matt Zoller Seitz's dead wife. It was, like, inspired by this essay mm-hmm. he wrote about his dead wife, which is so fucking weird and mm-hmm. not okay. Mm-hmm. And then also just, like, Girls. Girls, I feel like that was a show... Very, I don't know anybody who watched it um, all the way through, even the first season. But it was so it was so fueled by the discourse, mm-hmm. and I think that's really what it started. And it started to get out of hand, where it's less like the actual number of people watching Voice of the of their generation is like 
negligible. Mm-hmm. But but of course, like the amount of people who use Twitter is negligible mm-hmm. and disproportionately represented by members of the media mm-hmm. and I guess uh, giant racists. Nazis. So it's like when those are the two sort yeah. of like poles of this yeah thing. so the two perspectives available on politics and culture are like you get you can have bourgeois liberalism yes. or you can have like fascism literal, literal yeah <laughs> yeah and by the way for the take industrial complex to work on this stuff it has to be a golden age exactly uh, everything's a golden. You know, and again if like if everything's a golden age like nothing is but like yeah. if it's not a golden age if like if if hollywood and the entertainment industry are fundamentally broken as i think they are yes. then then why why write about them like they it has to be a golden age for you to like validate your own existence right right um and also the, the whole kind of representation politics that's become the dominant way to talk about these superhero movies it gives people an easy rubric with which to grade them it's a it's do-it-yourself film criticism yeah and i mean it's it's funny how um you know in the past on the left you know people who are slightly left of the center were you know like red baited right yeah and now it's um bro baiting Mm-hmm. Where, where you know it's like oh you're just you you know that Bernie Sanders he only cares about like white people like these dumbass miners who don't know how to code he and cares like, about white people off. things like having access to health care yeah. you know like, I'm sorry it's called universal health care <laughs> yeah it's not just for like poor like um, but again it's like it's this weird thing where um you know this in this echo chamber it's okay for people to just embody the worst caricatures of what liber- like East Coast liberals are mm-hmm. or, or you know like liberals who me- live in metropoles and I'm like mm-hmm. you, you you know when you say like fuck these minors that Bernie Sanders is talking to they, they shouldn't have health care because they're racist and misogynist it's like well, they're people. Like, mm. I'm sorry. And, like, maybe if they had... Well, also, they're, uh, like, yeah. they're, these people, it's like, okay, so the input, I mean, the input, this is, like, becoming a very, like, scattered discussion, that's but I'm, I'm really enjoying yeah, no, that's it. That's so, fine. Um, so we we can cut out all the times I said, I'm just going to complain about one more thing, or, or <laughs> this is a scattered discussion, because I'm really enjoying it. Let's yeah. keep it going. Because okay. um, last time, actually, when we had you on Skype, uh, we turned the mic off, and then we had a really interesting conversation <laughs> after, and I was like, we just, we should have just kept yeah. the mic going. Sorry, um, listener. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so so the impetus for a lot of those kinds of complaints was Bernie Sanders winning West Virginia. Right. And as and as Jacobin's Connor Kilpatrick pointed out at the time, people we were being told for I mean, you know, when we were growing up as young Michael Moore heads in the early two thousands, <laughs> right? The standard talking point is that uh, poor working class people, uh, they're too racist to vote against uh, or vote for their own interests. So they vote Republican. Right. Um, so the Democrats had to abandon the New Deal to create a new kind of coalition. All of a sudden, Bernie Sanders comes along. These people are voting for like a socialist program. Uh, that and calls itself socialist. That calls itself socialist. And then we're told they're only voting for it because they're racist. Right. Yes. Right? And I mean, there was a lot of really misleading stuff in that whole conversation because first of all, I kept seeing the, the fact that Trump also won West Virginia, as if it was the same people voting for oh, I know. both and of them. Oh, I know. And they want to like prove uh, it with these polls. The, well, like, there was this. Off. There was this exit poll which said, uh, which found that like a plurality, uh, like a, a plurality, not a majority, of people that voted for Sanders said they wanted uh, more conservative policies. There, I mean, not mentioned. There were larger groups said they wanted more liberal policies. But and again, I'm really stealing Connor Kilpatrick's uh, argument here uh, from from that Jacobin article he wrote after. But you know, 
what did what do the terms liberal and conservative mean if you are like in West Virginia? Like liberalism, not unfairly for a lot of people, is synonymous with like a very bougie affect. It yeah. could mean uh, like more liberal policies could mean like soda taxes. Yeah. You know, it's like it's not uh, it, the whole the whole conversation around all that stuff is really misleading. And I definitely think like what's so weird, and I think what. Will and I find every day in our DMs when we're complaining about things is how much I mean it's interesting that this conversation how like much we've like like gone in and out of like interchangeably politics and culture because yeah. I think that all these things really map very cleanly onto these like very clear ideological divisions yeah. and there and it's not just that the uh, liberals and the left, you know, disagree about specific policies they think the federal government in Canada or the United States should be pursuing. There's actually a whole different, um, and the difference isn't just affect either. It's there. There are fundamentally different views at play about a whole range of things mm. that encompasses a much larger sphere than just you know uh, Hillary or Bernie. Right, and I mean, um, uh, this is something that was addressed in the other side, the Roberto Minervini film, where. You know, you see a white man who has no problem throwing the N-word around, mm -hmm. but he's criticizing Obama for not doing enough for black people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's a totally valid criticism. Like, and it's something that, and just seeing like, you know, militia members who had served in the armed forces being like, well, what right do we have to go over to the Middle East, which has been a culture for thousands and thousands of years. We've only existed for like a little over 200 years. Like, who are we to go over there and tell them how to live? And that, that's such a, you know, again, like when everyone was blindsided by Trump's victory in the media and they had to come up with, well, this is why, this is why we were wrong. And it's like, what other fucking job could you ever have and like fuck up that badly and still have that job? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. just completely. And, and um, I'm reminded, um, again, sort of talking about like people making assumptions about who people are based on how they vote. Um, there was that book called What's the Matter with Kansas? Right. And it's like, why do these people do this? And I remember somebody wrote this amazing parody of that where they talk about people on um, the Upper East Side of Manhattan who vote against their interests <laughs> by putting, you know, Democrats in. And yeah. it's like, that's true. Somebody, yeah. yeah. Why yeah. would somebody do that? And it's like, well, okay, mm -hmm. let's 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 uh, let's rethink this and just like it's so easy again because Oh, where did I read it? There was some really fantastic article that just showed, again, because of the internet, the way that, um, you know, non-coastal media has really collapsed. Yeah. And those, there is nothing filling that void. And because of that, there's this atomization and just people who, you know, they don't have a budget to travel to West Virginia to talk to people on the ground. Or if they do, they're only there for like three days and that's not really a, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's just bad journalism. Mm -hmm. I saw a great quote from Matt Damon once where he said, I think a lot of the world's problems would be solved by full passports. If people just got out there and visited places. <laughs> I, I knew a guy from the UK who was like, oh, don't only like, like 50% of, less than 50% of Americans have passports and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, okay, dude, but like, it, for you as, you know, like you as a European back when that was still true, yeah. um, you can like fucking, you go like 
200 miles and like you're in a totally you drive the country. distance from toronto yeah. to montreal and cross three countries and the, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah yeah and it's like it's totally and like yeah. people in the u.s don't have as much vacation time you could give them passports and then no one has paid vacations and exactly. no one yeah. and no one's yeah. making enough money to travel Fuck. abroad anyway because the like the extremely privatized airlines are like milking them all and yeah. Yeah. surge pricing during hurricane and, irma and, and all the rest yeah. of it. And, treating, and then like just the degradation <laughs> of flying right now like how fucking unpleasant it is yeah like, yeah i mean it's mm-hmm. just um yeah there's there were so many i'm glad we got onto that how about those fucking airlines am i right I <laughs> you know you can't even yeah I, you're not allowed to bring a leaf blower onto an airplane <laughs> what's the deal with the spring-loaded taps at the airport do they do these geniuses really think we're gonna leave the water running <laughs> What? Actually, I've always wondered that. What, what about what about the prices of the sandwiches at the airport? It's 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 outrageous. Um, well, should we, I don't know. Should we wrap it up? Yeah, I guess we I guess we can wrap it up. Um, you know, we we had some laughs. We, uh, <laughs> we gotta do better. We we learned we learned some things. We got a little outraged. We got a little outraged, but ultimately, I think what we learned is that all of us are are really on the same page. We all want to make America better. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we're all brothers under the skin. Yeah. You know. Um, uh, don't forget, they live, we sleep. So um, please rise up and um, kill, kill the rich. Now watch this drive. <laughs> <laughs>